Mark chapter 8. Jesus um, is still in the area of Decapolis on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee where he had healed the deaf mute and now the multitudes have grown to a very great number. Now if you've gone to Israel with us, you can see where this is at as we are, um, this is the east side, this is not the west side where Capernaum down, uh, Tiberias and all that. The eastern side was the Gentile side, the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, remember Isaiah prophesied. And um, so the crowds are growing here. Uh, he's healed that deaf mute in our last study at the end. And now in chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, you have the feeding of the 4,000. The parallel passage is found in Matthew 15, 32 through 39. Um, the heart of Jesus for people is evident here in these first three verses. In verse 1, the time and location. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, and the phrase in those days refers um, to when Jesus was in the Decapolis, the ten cities, the Greek cities um, that uh, were bound up in the Greek culture. Remember Alexander the Great had Hellenized the whole area. And so it points us back to the end of chapter um, 7. Um, there um, being an immense number of people, Jesus calls his disciples to himself once again. He is training them. He is teaching them. He is preparing them to be those representatives of the gospel that was going to go all over the world. At this point, as we'll see, once Jesus hits Caesarea Philippi, he is walking six months from the cross. He's walking under the shadow of the cross. And we'll make some observations there. Now, in verse 2, the motive of Jesus was uh, his concern for the people. I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Um, Jesus was a true shepherd, uh, as you know um, uh, Ezekiel 34, uh, God calls out the, the idle shepherds, the shepherds that feed themselves, care for themselves. I think of what's going on today with the coronavirus and everything and um, how many churches have been absolutely closed up for seven months. How do you do that to your people? I mean, we've done different things and we started believing these guys and we did certain things and then we went out in the parking lot, but we, we have church. Uh, one of the... Uh, tactics of the enemy is to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that can heal our nation is the gospel. Everything else will make it worse. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so having compassion here, um, the word compassion means to be moved with one's bowels, literally bowels or the visceral area indicating pity because that's where you sense your emotions at, right at the gut level. Um, the uh, old King James sometimes has bowels or kidneys, uh, depending on the translation. And so um, this was the third day, notice, that Jesus had uh, been preaching, teaching, and healing, because those were the three aspects of his ministry constantly. The people needed food in verse 3, and if, and if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from far. 
Now that means that there probably were Gentiles. Remember, Jesus had gone up to Syrophoenicia and the Syrophoenician woman and many of, uh, of the Gentiles. So the, the, his, his fame was growing and the journey back was long and having come from such far distance, it would have been very difficult for them. People walked everywhere. They didn't have to go to the gym. They didn't have to have special diets to lower their cholesterol. <laughs> they just walked everywhere. They worked hard, they got up early, and they worked all day, and they slept very well. Uh, a whole different world. In verse 4 through 10, you have the plan of Jesus to feed the people. And uh, the response of the disciples comes first in verse 4. Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? So it's a deserted area, not the wilderness as we would think, but a deserted area there. Uh, the disciples had so quickly forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000 and the miracles there in chapter 6, verse 34 through 44. Um, sometimes we, you know, as again, as I shared with you before, in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples always fail. Other people get it. They don't. And so it's easy for us to say, well, I can't believe these guys. But, you know, Look at what God has done in your life, or in my life. Or he just does something miraculous this week for you, or the, the week before. And, and he just brought you through, and you worship, and you thank him. And then the next test comes this week, and you go, what am I going to do? We forget about it, too. This is our human flesh. So when those times come, we have to remember what God has done for us. Write it down. Put it down. In the Old Testament, they would put a pile of stones so the children grew up. They say, what does this mean? This is where the Lord brought us across the Jordan. You don't need to divide it. Reminders, epitaphs for their children, their history. The inquirer of Jesus, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. The instructions of Jesus then follows. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. Now, notice that the time is probably late summer because they sit on the ground. Um, the feeding uh, of the 5,000, they sat on the grass probably in spring or just beginning of summer. So this is a different one. See, people confuse this feeding with the other one. It is not the same one, two distinct things. Jesus, notice, thanks the Father for the bread. Um, Jesus gave to his disciples, and they gave to the people observing the multiplication. The tense indicates the bread kept multiplying in the hands of Jesus. No one lacked. The little that you have, the little that I have, if I honor the Lord with that and I ask him for wisdom and direction, he will be sufficient for that. I'm speaking to you out of 46 years of ministry and walking with God and being married, raising kids. God did some miraculous things for us as we had no money. I had no insurance when my kids were born. I had to pay them cash before they could come home. 
Now, granted, the, the, the price is a little different, but the salaries were a lot different also. And with the, my son, he uh, had complications. He uh, was born, he swallowed part of the membrane sac, so his little chest was contracting to his backbone. And they didn't know if he was going to live. So they transferred him from the hospital in West Covina over here to uh, Huntington, which was a little thing. They had the neonatology at the very back of the parking lot. It was just the, the hospital wasn't that big. And um, we didn't have the money. We had just, you know, uh, to show you the days, uh, that was, uh, he was born in 77. And in 74, we bought our first house for $22,500, a 1,200-square-foot house. And so we figured we're going to lose the house, no big deal. You know, it's our kid, no big deal. But then they said, you know, Cripples Children's Fund can help you out, and they'll, they'll step in, and then you can just pay in proportion to what you have. I go, oh, great, thank you very much, you know. And so we made the payments monthly and everything else, and we were so thankful and all that. Uh, and, and I got a, a, a notice that um, um, I didn't know anything anymore. So I called them up. I said, no, I, I owe you money. I, you know, this is what happened, this and that. And they go, well, we're going to check it out, Mr. Reeves. We'll, we'll let you know. They called me back and said, you don't know anything. I said, you don't understand. I said, I'm thankful for what you gave, and I know other people need the money. I want to keep paying. And they called me another time and said, your account is closed, and that's it. We don't want to hear from you. That was God. I don't know how he did it. Okay? But I know he did it. And I can tell you, situation after situation. But I can also tell you that as we went on in life and we got better off, God didn't have to do those things. And he didn't do those things. But he wants me to never forget what he did. He steps in, ladies and gentlemen. You walk with him. You be faithful to him. You honor him. He will honor you. Absolutely. He's a debtor to no one. And so the same was done with the two, few fishes and seven. They also had a few small fishes, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So clearly the uh, disciples had to remember uh, the first feeding at this point. Oh, yeah, I remember. Just like us. The outcome now of the miracles is in verse 8. So they ate, and they were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. So they end up with more than they began with. I can tell you the miracle of this building, where God gave us this building with 300 people. God had raised the, 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 the church from three people of a Bible study in 1980 um, to about 500 at the last location where we were at the um, theater on um, Atlantic and, and Maine, in Alhambra. That theater, that old cockroach-infested theater is not there anymore. They put a new one. They tore it down. They have a big old building. And he gave us this building with 300 people. We bought this building for a million, 80,000, 300 people. I remember walking through this thing, me and Mario, and we negotiated for it, and we got all done, and yet God provided. We just knew God had given it to us. God provided. We never begged. We never squeezed people for money, nothing. 
God took care of us from day one. Were there some tough times? Absolutely necessary. 1994, there's a courtyard out there where the gym is. An old, beautiful brick building of the Nazarenes. They originally started here. The cornerstone was there. The um, Whittier earthquake came and cracked it. A year to the day, October the 1st, we got in here in 86, it cracked it in 87. To the day. In 94, we decided to tear it down and build a gym there. By the time we got through with everything, whatever, it was probably about, I forget exactly, say half a million dollars for everything. By the time we put the key in the door, it was all paid off. No cookie sales, no car washes. For God, guys, he provides. Am I boasting? Yes, I'm boasting in God. Not in us. I am the most amazed every time that people come. I'm amazed at what God has done through the years of all the teaching he's given. Who in the world with his right mind would think that he would undertake the endeavor to speak to the same people for 40 years? Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek, and plus others. And be able to still be relevant if it isn't God. All of that is very, very important, ladies and gentlemen, as you raise your children, as you go through the difficult times of life, and that you cling to him. He is so, so faithful. The outcome of the miracle in verse 8, so they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets again, left over more than they did. The word filled there is glutted. It's used for feeding animals, Okay. The word for baskets is a hamper like uh, big enough for a man to get into it. It's the same word for basket that in Acts 9.25 says that when Paul was uh, being pursued by Eretus the king um, there in Damascus to kill him, they, he got into that basket and they lowered him out the window and he scurried over to Jerusalem. This is the same type size of basket. So these are huge baskets, different from the one, the previous one, which were smaller to carry food in chapter 6, verse 43. So the basket size are different. Now the number of people fed, and 9 tells us, now these, uh, those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. And so, again, you mark the distinction between the four and the 5,000. And we don't know if it was men and women, if there was children, whatever, but if, if, if it was... Just adults, you can imagine if you just add, if there were children there, they weren't counted. You know, churches always count their children. You go to Assembly of Gods, you go to a Baptist church or wherever you go, they have their little thing on the front there and they tell you how many people attend this Sunday, how many in the children, how much this, that, and they give you the whole roster, okay? We, we, when people ask me, how about how many people come? I don't, I don't ever count the children. We're not interested in impressing people. People say, you know, we have ministered the gospel to 100,000 people. Yeah, how many have stayed? People love to impress people with numbers. A pastor that gives me numbers, I don't even pay attention to him. And he may be a good teacher, 
He's lost perspective. Numbers mean absolutely nothing. When I study to teach you, I study as hard as if it was just one person. It doesn't matter to me. As I said, when I come out, I'm always amazed that people come. But I have to remember why they come. They come to hear God, not me. Very, very important. And so you can imagine just easy multiplication, 4,000. It's easy, double it, 8,000 or more. And they still had all these leftovers. Now the departure is given in 10 immediately. He got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanusa. The city of Dalmanusa means slow firebrand. It's the only place here found in the New Testament. It's never mentioned anywhere else. Matthew indicates in the parallel passage, it is the region of the territory of Magdala. On the western side, that was three miles south of Tiberias. So um, the close proximity there. Matthew 15, 39, um, somewhere in there. Uh, there's a lot of places they have not uh, uncovered. In fact, the last time we were in Israel, which would have been three years ago, because we should have gone last year, but we got canceled out because of corona, uh, they had just discovered a, a synagogue down at Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from. That's why it's called Magdala, and uh, she used to call her that. So... Um, many things are still, every time they go build some roads or going to build something, they always dig something up so they have to detour and go somewhere else and just another dig. Uh, things are buried all over uh, Israel. Now in verse 11 to 13, you have the Pharisees who come to seek a sign. The parallel passage is Matthew 16, 1 through 4, also chapter 12, 38 through 39, and then Luke 11, 29. The hust. The hostile attitude of the religious men is given to us in verse 11. The Pharisees approached Jesus at, at his arrival. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. They just dogged him everywhere, much like the Judaizers dogged Paul all over the place. Paul would go evangelize in the region of the Gentiles, and then the Pharisees would come by when they go, and they try to convert him into the law. And so the Pharisees were the ritualistic religious leaders, as we've seen before. Matthew includes the Sadducees also, the nationalists, materialists. Uh, 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 they're just religious people, people of power, people of position. If you're not a, a, a Christian, if you are not walking with God, the obsession of power to be able to rule over people is intoxicating. Um, money is a goal, but after a while, there's no longer the money. People have so much money. It's just the power to be able to do what they want, to break people, to, to make them do what they want done. The word dispute there means to question or inquire. The context is with an evil intent here. So they were never, um, we've already seen where they uh, confronted him because the disciples were eating uh, uh, the, from the wheat field and you know, why do you not keep the Sabbath, so on and so forth. And the Pharisees wanted to entrap Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. <clears throat> and so they're always looking in some way to dis discard his authority, to cancel it out of your cancel culture. We're very familiar with that, right? Uh, these guys, they were the, the, the guys in that day. Uh, the word sign there indicates a miraculous token from heaven as credentials that he was 
from God. And yet, he's just been healing the blind, the deaf, the dumb, casting out demons, feeding people from small amounts that he just multiplied. And they say, show us a sign. <laughs> Amazing. And you say, how can these guys do that? All you have to do is look at the modern day world of our politics. Our news, our fake news. How can they say what they say? Because they're on a mission. They ignore the truth. They have an agenda. Same thing with these guys. No different. They declare they're, they're using science. That science fiction. Not science. I gave you the statistics about the survivability of those with coronavirus. All of them in their 99 point something. Even old guys like me. As long as you don't have overriding conditions, diabetes, whatever it is. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, there is no pandemic. There's another agenda behind this. To break the American economy and get rid of the middle class and to flip this nation into a world citizenship. This is a dress rehearsal for the Antichrist. And so you have to be praying, looking to the Lord. Very, very important. They refused to believe all that he had done. The word testing, in the context, again, has the idea of maliciousness to find something to accuse Jesus of. Matthew says Jesus rebuked them in that they could predict the weather, but not the sign of the times. Matthew and Luke tell us Jesus gave them the sign of Jonah in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, and Luke 11, 29 through 30. No sign shall be given you except that of the prophet Jonah, as he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if Jesus wouldn't have picked that out, you and I read Jonah, we would never figure that out. Okay? So he grabs that thing from the Old Testament, brings it to the front. It was prophetic of me in a type. Interesting. Faith for salvation doesn't come by signs and wonders, by the way, but by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. There have been groups who have tried to push that agenda, and because people are foolish and people are emotional and people don't study the Word of God, they get sucked into these different movements. You have the movement of the vineyards, the sign and wonders, that, um, with the late, um, oh, I forget his name, oh, I'm having an old times seizure right now. Um, it'll come. But he used to teach here at, uh, at uh, Fuller's Seminary with Wagner, and, uh, and they had what they call power evangelists, and you go out to the streets, you do miracles, this way people get saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. John Wimber, late John Wimber. And he was not the one who started the vineyards. The name vineyard was used by Ken Galaxan, who was an original Calvary chapel that went to the East Coast in New York. Okay? And then he took that name and divided the Calvaries because John Wimber came into the Calvaries. He was, um, uh, he didn't believe in the gifts. He was a Quaker from Friends Church. 
He came into the understanding of the full gospel and what God had done. He got on fire. And, and the problem with John was that he had all his graphs, sociological and graphs of the territories. And, all, and he started to bring all this stuff in. And, and he just kept going all the way to the left, even to attempt to teach people how to raise people from the dead, really. If you do not hang that plumb line, the word of God, and judge everything you are hearing by that plumb line, you will be deceived. You must hang the plumb line, God's word. Anybody says anything, they must show you scripture for it in context. Passage out of context is nothing but a pretext to teach whatever you want. And you have to be careful. 12 and 13, we have the grief of Jesus for their unbelief. The visible evidence is in verse 12, but he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. The sighing deeply here means to groan, to draw from the bottom of your chest, your breast, indicating an emotional disturbance and distress over the unbelief and the hardness of heart. You as a parent can understand this as you raise your children and you tell them the same thing over and over again and then one time you're just, you just, you just, so why, why can't you learn? But if you think back, you did the same thing with your parents. Is that sin nature? It's life. Satan would want you to believe that you're the only messed up family. <laughs> oh, that everybody else is right on. No, no. I mean, there's different degrees depending on how you're raised up like that, but we're all sinners. And if you don't restrain sin nature, if you don't set boundaries and consequences, that sin nature will just go. You have a father at home who doesn't set the boundaries, doesn't bring consequences, the kids run home. You have a man that doesn't set boundaries to the marriage with his wife and all that, the wife will run the home. It's a sad commentary in the church that the majority of churches are run by women, not men. The Bible is clear in Timothy. First and Second Timothy and Titus, the only three books for the church government and how to run the church. Men are to be heads of the church. That doesn't mean women can't teach. It doesn't mean women can't do anything, but they, they, they do that under the authority and supervision of the men to protect the women. And so the children learn the headship of the man, the completion of the woman, and the submission of the children to the parents and to God. Very, very important. And so when you teach that, there's order, there's effectiveness. If you don't, then you raise your family and you run your life the worldly way, whatever the culture of the generation may be. As I look at my life from 1973 when I got born again to now, man, our culture has changed drastically. You just pick a home in the 70s, far different from the 80s. Everything started going down real bad. 80s to the 90s? Whoa, worse. 90 to the 2000, we're done. We became an amoral nation after 2000. Relativity. 210, horrible. The 20s now, much worse. Even to the point that they're trying to overthrow our nation. Now, those people that are teaching kingdom theology, as I said this morning, 
You say, what is that? That's when people pray. We bind you, Satan. We're going to take this territory. We're going to just put Christians in office, and the world's going to get better and better, and we're going to bring in the kingdom. You're smoking crack. What Bible are you reading? I like to hear these kingdom theology preachers. Evans and all these guys. Where's the better right now? When you don't believe what the Bible says and you make up your own stuff, you may be able to sell it for a while. But not when things start going the way the Bible says they're going to go. It's very important. And so, Jesus grieved. How Jesus must have grown over the blindness and of our day, the evolutionists who deny the creation of God. Those who say that God made me a homosexual or a lesbian. What a confusion. What an insult to God. God tells us in Romans 1 through Paul that because men worship the creature, more than the creator which is blessed forevermore, they corrupted themselves. And they changed the natural use of the man with women to men and men and women to women. And it finishes there, and their judgment is just due because they've corrupted themselves. And in Romans 1, you have three faces, unclean thoughts, reprobate minds. Vile affections, unclean thoughts, reprobate minds, spiraling down. And God gives people up. But he's knocking on the door of their heart all along. And when people's heart gets so hard and they become blasphemous, God draws that line. Pharaoh is a perfect example of that. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It means to make it stiff. And then you read, and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, a different Hebrew word. He says, I will respect you, and I will strengthen you in your position of rejecting me. So right away, people say, well, that's not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? If you don't want to do with God, he honors your, your choice. And he won't make no mistake of doing it too early. He's perfect. Everybody in hell tonight knows they're there by their own doing. No one's accusing God in hell about being unjust. Not one. They do here. Everybody has a big mouth here. But not in hell or heaven. Only on earth. And so the miraculous sign was denied to them. For to them were committed the oracles of God. Romans 3, 2. The Jews. They had God's word. To those who much is given, much more is required. The physical dismissal comes in 13. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Uh, the word left there means to be sent away. Jesus bid them to go away. And Jesus then boarded the boat again and sailed to the other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. In 14 through 21, you get the warning of Jesus about the corruption of the Pharisees and Herod. 14 through 16, the spiritual dullness of the disciples. Now, okay, again, he's dealing with the Pharisees. Now he's going to deal with the disciples. Now, the occasion is now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. 
and they did not have more than one loaf. And then in the boat, Matthew says, when they got to the other side, Matthew 16, 5. So again, you put the parallel passage together and you'll get a complete picture of all that happened. The instructions follow. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Uh, the phrase take heed means to mark with the eye and perceive the act with caution, becoming acquainted with by experience. As you grow from being a little kid to a teenager, that you, start, you, you keep growing in experience. You learn a lot. What is safe, what isn't safe, or what's dangerous, what that, this is what he, he's, he's telling them. The word beware uh, means to perceive by the use of the eye and discern what's going on. The warning regards the leaven of the Pharisees and, and, the, and Herod here. Leaven in Scripture, as you know, is always a type of sin. Leviticus 2.4, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul uses that. A uh, little leaven, leaven is a whole lump. You ladies cook with uh, yeast, that's what leaven is. And you have to have your bread rise, right? So you put it in, you put it by a fire or something warm so it can rise, right? You don't put no leaven, it's just flat bread. And so it's the corruption. Matthew adds the Sadducees um, in this uh, place right here, Matthew 16, 6. The Pharisee's sin was hypocrisy unbelief, self-righteousness, and false doctrine. That's what Jesus was talking about. But the disciples were going to see, they, they weren't getting it. The Sadducees were the rationalists, the wealthy materialists. They did not believe in spirits, angels, or the resurrection. Acts 23.8 tells us that. So here you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that are running the temple. And the Pharisees are a bunch of rip-off. And the Sadducees, the rationalists. The Pharisees do believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees don't believe in angels or the resurrection or spirits, and yet they're running the temple of God for profit. Amazing. Herod was corrupted by power, as you know, wealth and worldliness. And the Sadducees often are joined with Herods, the Herodians and the, and the Sadducees, political groups. And I am amazed of how, uh, through the years that I've been a Christian, how sometimes pastors get real chummy with politicians. And it's very, very dangerous. I'm not saying we're not to speak about politics or confront the things, but if you're a pastor, you have to make sure you feed the flock of God and you're not spending time away from the flock of God. And you make sure you give them the word of God. There's nothing wrong with having people that are going to give you information and you're praying for them. But once you start crossing that stuff, it's very, very dangerous. And we've seen it through the years where people get themselves in trouble. And you have to be careful. Um, politicians are parasites. Um, they're in it for themselves. There are a good handful out there. Thank God for them. Some of them believers. Pray for them. But um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so the reaction in verse 16, they reason among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. They were thinking only of the earthly level rather than the spiritual meaning. This was the collective conclusion of all 12 of them. Once again, they fail. 17 through 21, you have the spiritual teaching to the disciples. 
In 17, the strong rebuke comes. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Wow. You say, wow, that's pretty mean of Jesus. No. He's dealing with his disciples. Now, if they had no ability to understand, then it would be mean. Then it would be unjust. But if Jesus rebukes them, that means that they, they could have had, they should have had at this time this understanding. And he nails the problem, the heart. Jeremiah 17.9. In many ways, they still have the Jewish mind, as we're going to see. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. They think he's going to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom and knock off Rome. Once again, you have your program for what God should be doing now? Or are you following the Bible? Very, very important. The implication being here, spiritual dullness. In the declaration that their hearts were hardened, peru is the word covered with a thick skin, a callus. Osteoporosis, you get that. That's the root word, the hardening of the bones. Not enough calcium. The mild reproof comes in 18. Having eyes you do not see, and having ears you do not hear. And do do you not remember? He points back to what just happened. Being spiritually alert is not apart from the physical senses, but by and through them often. If we're not born again, then our ears, our eyes, and our brain only is used in the natural senses by what we have learned from the world, our education, or whatever it is. When you're born again, you can assess these things and you see things much different and you understand things much different because you're checking them out and you're comparing them and you're seeing them through the eyes of Scripture, through the will of God. That makes all the difference in the world. Being forgetful of what God had done in the past can cause us to not be prepared for the present work. Remember. Notice in 19, the recalling of the um, first feeding. He says, when, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, 12. They're busted. They just didn't get it. But once again, you and I do the same thing. God shows you and you just, oh, Lord, forgive me. And, you know, I'm sorry, hard-headed, all that. And there we are next week, next month, 10 years later. Wow. Tell you, the sin nature is hard. It's strong. And if we don't reckon it dead daily, as we said this morning, as we'll see in the text we go by the call of the disciples, it'll rear its ugly head. Always. So the recalling of the second feeding, also when I broke the seven for the 4,000 and many large baskets full of fragments that you uh, take up, and they said seven. They again. Jesus is connecting the dots for them. Their personal accountability was due to their high privilege. Look at verse 21. 
So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Once again, if a father would say to a, to a three-year-old, why didn't you mow the lawn today? You go. But if he looks at his 18-year-old son and says, why did you not mow the lawn today? It's legitimate, right? This is the same thing right here. To those that much is given, much more is required. Luke 12, 48. Jesus asked six questions to his disciples showing their spiritual dullness. All these questions. 22 to 26, you have the blind man healed at Bethsaida. This is unique of Mark. It's not found anywhere else. In 22, the constant demand on Jesus location. Then he came to Bethsaida. Its uh, origin is Aramaic. It means house of fish. This is Bethsaida, Julia, on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, the capital of the district of uh, the Golanites, um, a small fishing village. You have the Golan Heights. That's where it's at up there. And um, not far east of the entrance of the Jordan where it pours in. And um, again, Mark is the only one that um, gives this. Mark records it, and uh, it's to be distinguished from Bethsaida on the west side. Okay, this is the north, the northwest on the east side of the Jordan, that come, the river that comes out of the headwaters of Mount Hermon that pours in, uh, and the other two. And um, Bethsaida has to be distinguished from the one of um, Peter, John, Philip, and Andrew, where they were from. So that one's on the west side, two different ones. And the occasion again, and they brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. This was the, the usual thing with Jesus. Okay? The demand was just incredible all the time. Um, the scene was the usual. Uh, they have heard Jesus doing miracles. He touched the blind and... Um, you know, they, they saw for the first time. I can't even imagine. I mean, someone has been blind all their life, and all of a sudden, they get to see what an incredible thing. Now, I understand a little more because I only have one eye. I lost my one eye. That's how I came to know the Lord, uh, through a kung fu demonstration we were doing, and the stick punctured my eye. And right there, as it deflated in my hand, I asked the Lord to save me. And um, I had two eyes once. I was blind. Now I have one eye I can see. And so the Lord is good, all right? And sight is so precious because I only have one light bulb left. And as you get older, it gets worse. Sometimes I can't even read the letters. If it wasn't for this pad, I wouldn't be able to teach. What I do is I, 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 I blacken the background and I read white letters. Because if I do it with a regular light, I lose the letters. And that wouldn't be a bad idea for you guys, especially if you're younger, you're doing it all your life. You know, uh, flip your, uh, your, your, your computer to that. Put dark on there, and you'll, it's a lot easier on your eyes and your mind and everything else. It's just that you're used to the other side, but it's a lot better for you. And anyway, here, um, the sight, just precious, um, incredible. The method Jesus um, implemented is in 23. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had bit on his eyes and put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw anything. 
Notice the man doesn't say, hey, what are you doing spitting on me? What I ask you to heal me? He's submitting to Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. And notice, Jesus didn't heal the same way all the time. Different. People are always looking for a pattern so they can do the same thing in their churches. No pattern. Sovereignty. Totally. He healed other blind in a different way. The response of the blind man in 24 says, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. That means that he was not born blind. That means he had sight at one time. He said, I see them as trees. Interesting. The second step Jesus took, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. This is the only place a healing is in progressive stages. Now, was Jesus rusty that morning or what? <laughs> no. Again, no pattern. The healing was conceded. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Jesus always wanted to remain anonymous. The crowds are getting too big. Jesus pronounced judgment over Bethsaida for their unbelief in Matthew eleven twenty one, 21. and Bethsaida, not this one, but the other one. Because to those who much is given again, much more is required. In 27 to 33, you have the confession at Caesarea Philippi. The parallel passage is Matthew 16, 13 through 23. Um, and uh, Luke 9, 18 through 22. Um, also, chapter 17 of, of Matthew, verse 1, I divides it a little different. But here in 27 and 28, different opinions about the person of Jesus. Many divide Mark at this point as Jesus is beginning to walk under the shadow of the cross, as I said. So they divide Mark in two halves, a very clean, simple division. And this is the turning point. The location is given in 27, the beginning. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of Bethsaida that we just read, the capital that was ruled under Philip, the son of Herod the Great in the district of Euteria, where Philip had beautified and named this after Caesar and himself. Real modest guy. Um, the location, you, some of you have been there, is the foot of Mount Hermon, 1,500 uh, feet above sea level, and uh, where it is one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River. So here we're standing at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is back there where the balcony is, and where those doors are, there's a gushing water that just comes flowing, huge. And um, it's... It was a place of idolatry. The Arabs um, cannot pronounce the letter P. They pronounce it as B. And so they call Banyas, Panyas. They can't pronounce it. Panyas, the god Pan. And in that cave, they say that's where the god Pan was born, okay? The worship of nature, pantheism, the tree is God, the air is God, the mountain is God, the sea is God. No, he created all of them. Idolatrous. This was the center of idolatry for Baal to Caesar worship. A very appropriate place where, for the question Jesus is going to ask. Because it was a beautiful place and it was given to the, the idolatry of 
pagan gods as well as the worship of Caesar. The question, and on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? There are many opinions about Jesus even today. Unless your opinion lines up with the revelation of the Bible, your opinion is worthless. In fact, insulting to God. The answer, so they answer John the Baptist, but some say Elisha, and others say the prophets. Herod believed Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. John was the cousin of Jesus. Others said Elisha, according to the prophecy of Malachi 4-5. But they were wrong. Still others said the prophets Moses spoke about, Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. And this is true. Jesus was the prophet that God would hold responsible to hear all his words. The prophet of prophets. Jesus is prophet, king, and priest. All three. Matthew as Jeremiah. Matthew 16, 14. And so this is all the stuff that the people of the day were saying. Now in 29 and 30, the correct understanding about the person of Jesus is given to us. And the second is the most important question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, the Christos. Peter declared, you are the anointed Messiah. Psalm 2, Daniel 9, 25. Matthew as the son of the living God. And the flesh and blood did not reveal this to Peter, but my Father in heaven, Jesus said. Matthew 16, 16 through 17. Luke adds, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God. Luke 9, 20. Notice the declaration. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Once again, he's headed towards Jerusalem. But notice that you are the son of the living God. You're the Christ. The Christ of God. This is revelation from the Father. When people hear the gospel, they, they, they cannot conclude intellectually that Jesus is God without the power of the Holy Spirit to turn on that light, to convict them of their sin, to turn on the light so they can see themselves in that lost condition and that Jesus can forgive them. That's a work of the Spirit of God, not a pastor. If anything, I make people mad. The Holy Spirit convicts people. And turns that light on. So from this point on, Jesus would be walking under the shadow of the cross towards Jerusalem. The disciples had a wrong view of the Messiah, believing that he was going to set up the kingdom. You can look that up in Luke 19, 11. Okay? Easy verse to remember, 1911. Especially you guys with 1911 handgun. Okay? What a great gun. <laughs> Look at 31 through 33. The ultimate authority is vested to the person of Jesus here. The revelation about the purpose of his coming. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and after three days rise from the dead. From this point on, Jesus never mentioned his death without his resurrection but they didn't hear it. 
They didn't hear it. Why? Because they had the Jewish mind. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. They were looking to get to Jerusalem, knock off Rome, and begin to rule. That's what James and John asked Jesus, the right hand, the left hand. They brought their mommy along. Interesting. Six months from the cross here, Mark 9, 31, 10, 32, and here also. The word must means it is absolutely necessary to suffer, reject, be rejected, and kill. The word rejected there means to fail, to not pass this scrutiny, disapproval, repudiation. First Peter 2, 2, rejected. The Gospels are very clear about Jesus. They hated him, accused him falsely. The third day, God would raise him from the dead, and he did. Look at 32. The revelation of the purpose of his coming opposed. He spake this word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It didn't match Peter's Jewish eschatology. So he grabs him by the arm, takes him over, and begins to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine? Abraham Lincoln said, quote, Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Interesting. Verse 33, the revelation about Jesus cannot be contradicted. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Wow. The word rebuke is the word that's used to imply rebuke without bringing one to acknowledgement of fault. Peter was not convinced. He thought he was right. Wow. Amazing. Now, just stop and think about it. Just five, ten seconds ago, if you want to take a minute, God the Father just showed him that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, he goes completely to the other end and tries to contradict the plan of the cross like Satan wanted to do in the wilderness as he tempted Jesus. He always tried to keep him from going to the cross. Now that's why he calls him Satan, get thee behind me. Wow, interesting. The charge is clear. Peter was dealing to being an instrument of Satan to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Do you know how many pastors, Christians, our instrument of Satan, because they have bad theology. He got it wrong. Interesting. The accusation is also clear. Peter was not viewing or considering the words and actions regarding the things of God, but rather the things of man. His benefit once he got to Jerusalem. We're going to rule, man. The constant conversation of the disciples, the 12 dirty dozen, was, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who do you think it is? Interesting. 34 through 38, you have the cost of discipleship. The parallel passage, Matthew 16, 24 to 28, Luke 9, 23 through 27. Look at verse 34. The foundational principle is to lose sight of oneself. We did this this morning in depth. I'm not going to spend all that time in it. You can get the message. But the summing of Jesus for them, he says, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, the words of Jesus, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. None is excluded, whosoever. No one's excluded from salvation except those who reject salvation. All must deny themselves, 
Forget about oneself. The importance of oneself. Very important. There are three imperatives. The first two are an errorist, a decision at a point in time. The last one is a decision that's made and continuously the result of those first two. All must take up their cross, symbolic of the instrument of death. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Galatians 2, 20, the crucified life. All must follow, meaning they take up the same road another in fellowship. In this case, Jesus. Look at 35, the lifelong principle is willing to lose one's life. The bad choice, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. That's it. You, you reject being a disciple of Christ here, you'll be the loser at the end. You will be judged by him. When you die, you will be separated from God. The right choice, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. You cannot separate Jesus from the gospel and his word. They are one. People say, well, you know, I, I believe in the Bible, but I believe Jesus is God. Then you're, you're, you're confused. You, you, can't, you can't say that. You got to believe the whole Bible. Men cannot save their own souls. Only Jesus. That's what the gospel says. The word life there is suki. It refers to the, the, the soul, the spiritual life, not the physical life. It involves the intellect, the emotion, and the will. When we're not born again, all those three corrupt us through the sin nature. Our spirit is dead, but when you're born again, you're inverted upside up. Now your spirit uppermost. You want to do the will of God. You deny yourself, pick up your cross, and you follow him. Your intellect is subject to the word of God. Your emotions don't dictate yourself to contradict the word of God. And your body becomes the temple of God. Very, very important. Verse 36, the argument from the value of one's soul. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, it's a hypothetical situation. No one's going to gain the whole world, but what if you could? All of that would not be of value compared to your soul. God values your soul more. There's no comparison. 37, the argument from the inability to purchase one's soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing that you can give, nothing you can buy. You cannot buy your sins, the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot buy heaven. People are used to getting their way because they have money, because they have influence, because they have fame or whatever it is. And because of that, you have so many people that right now are freaked out with the Epstein thing when they busted them and they've got this girl in jail and she's got all the names and everything else. And many of the names are judges, politicians, and everybody else, and Hollywood people. And I think that's why Governor Mussolini passed this uh, pedophilia uh, bill. So this way, some of these guys can escape as long as they were 10 years older than the minor. It's a slippery slope, ladies and gentlemen. Very, very corrupt. The promise of God's faithfulness to his word, the gospel. For whoever is ashamed of me and my word, in this adulterous, sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so those rejecting Jesus, refusing to repent, will be rejected by Jesus in that day because they have trodden underfoot the blood of Son of Man. 
Some by rejecting the gospel, others by turning away from God after they've come to know him. It happens two ways. Those accepting Jesus will repent. They will be accepted by Jesus. They will return with him at the second coming. Revelation 19 gives you the scenario of the second coming. And um, we will return with Jesus. The angels will come back. They're included also. And he will fight the battle of Armageddon against the armies of the world that will be there to try to stop him from setting up the kingdom. Foolish. He will cast the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, the devil, will be bound for a thousand years. The others will be in the lake of fire. And then Jesus will set up his kingdom. We will rule and reign with him. Israel will occupy the kingdom to fulfill all the promises that God gave to them in the Old Testament. They will occupy all the land all the way up to Lebanon. That's Jewish territory, according to Abraham's promise. The topography will be changed. The temple is described in detail in Ezekiel 40 to 48. That's the temple that could never fit on Mount Moriah right now. Mount Zion. That mountain will be redone when he returns. It's going to be much bigger. There'll be a gush of water source coming out from the throne of God there. One to the Mediterranean Sea, the other one to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea will have fish like the Mediterranean Sea, and the fishermen will hang their nets in Engedi. <clears throat> now, if you know what I'm talking about, <clears throat> you know that's the area of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea's shrinking. There's sinkholes all over it. I've seen it shrink in the last 40 years. They thought about opening up the Red Sea from the Suez Canal or from, um, um, from um, Elon. But again, it would be too devastating to the ecosystem, which is, the Bible says it never happened. So man has his plans, but God is in control. And so here again, um, God is so good, so on target, and he gives opportunity for people to come to know him, always through the gospel. That's why right now in the time that we're living, ladies and gentlemen, you be a witness, you be praying for your neighbors, for your loved ones that don't know the Lord, your children, you confront your children, you set the boundaries, you love them, but you don't let them rule your home. My children, once they were of age, I didn't want them to leave. My son graduated from high school and he went into the Marines. I hated it. He's gone. Now we're talking about 20-some years later. My daughter stayed until she got married. But if they stayed under my roof, they had to honor God. They have to come to church. They have to serve the Lord. And if not, they could pick the front door or the back door. It didn't make any difference to me. Do I hate my children? No, I love them. I love them so much that I will set the boundaries and bring the consequences. Look at our world. It's all messed up. All these millennialists, all these anarchists, they never got a good spanking. They were never told no. A lot of these guys, they need just one good beat down. First lesson to get through life. They get freaked out when somebody even touches them. But they don't consider the destruction and pain they're bringing. But you just put your hand on them, they cry like little girls. Bunch of little girls. And so... 
Take opportunity for the day that you're living. It's a great time to go fishing. A lot of fish out there. Lord, we worship you. We thank you. Thank you for tonight, for your goodness, Lord. And we thank you for just your grace over our life. Thank you for giving us this building, Lord, for just the electricity, the chairs, the comfort of this room, everything, Lord. We just thank you so much. And we pray, Lord, for anybody who's here who doesn't know you or those who are listening over the Internet, that you just allow them to see their need of you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if God has allowed you to see through the conviction of the Spirit and the illuminating work that you are lost and that your sin will separate you and does separate you from God, then you have the ability to ask him to forgive you. This is the grace of God. And if you don't know him and you want to be born again, this is your prayer of repentance right where you sit. And he's going to forgive you of everything you've ever done, give you a new heart, a new mind, a new nature by the grace of God. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.